That cacophony of bleeps, screeches, and dings is how computers would get online and connect to the internet during the 90s. This was dial-up internet, capped at snail-like speed. It worked well for the basics like sending emails, but not for much else. Additionally, dial-up internet would also tie up your phone line. Close on its heels came the digital subscriber line, commonly known as DSL, which used the telephone lines but would not interrupt your phone use. With DSL, speed limits were much higher than dial-up, allowing high volume data use, which meant websites loaded quickly and a lot more could be done. In 2021, however, cables and optical fibers, which are even faster than DSL, are the most common modes of providing an internet connection. From dial-up to instant access through DSL and cable, the internet has undergone massive changes. It has been the decisive technology of the information age, exerting massive influence on communication, education, healthcare, and every other slice of human life under the sun. In a society that is built on maintaining personal and organizational networks, the internet has been a medium for reform by making access to information and communication far easier. While scrolling through our cat videos and TikTok dance reels, we never pause to wonder, how did we get here? And how does this all work? I'm Nikhil, and together we shall traverse through the brilliant ideas that help lead humanity from the industrial age into the information age. Welcome to the third episode of Pursuit of Prosperity, and in this episode, we talk about the internet. First up is Jishnu, getting down to the brass tacks. How does the internet really work? The internet is a network of computers. The way it works is by connecting every device on the user's end to an internet backbone, and it is facilitated by your internet service providers in the middle. But this is a 10,000 feet view. Now to do all of this connecting is an engineering challenge in and of itself. To put this into a more concrete example, can you explain to our listeners how they are listening to our podcast right now from hundreds of miles away? Me talking right now is first cut up into more manageable data packets. These packets contain information regarding the origin and the destination addresses. The packets are then transported as radio waves to the router, which is a device that communicates between our devices and the internet. At the router, these waves are converted to electric pulses if the wires attached to it are copper cables, or razor pulses if the wires attached are fiber optic cables. These signals are then routed to internet hubs by our respective ISPs. From internet hubs, these signals are carried on cable highways to submarine cable providers like Alcatel, Huawei, and Subcom. The internet cables are laid by these submarines and sometimes even buried in the ocean floor. The signal then reaches the internet hubs halfway across the world and is picked up by other ISPs and is sent to the desired destination addresses. And that is how this audio is reaching wherever our listener is right now. It's incredible how simple all this seems to the consumers when in fact, there's a tremendous feat of engineering. We take for granted something that took decades of hard science and research to accomplish. It begs to wonder, when and how did this all start? Like many other great technological leaps, this one also starts with the Cold War. This is Shubham. The Cold War was a time of rapid technological progress. Scientists and engineers, both in America as well as in Soviet Russia, were working under warlike conditions. This era resulted in progress in many fields. 
The field of communication was especially notable as it set up the prerequisites to the internet. In 1958, at the height of the Cold War, the United States founded the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency or the DARPA. It came in response to the first unmanned satellite Sputnik 1 being sent into space by the Soviet Union. DARPA's purpose was to make pivotal investments in breakthrough technologies for national security. It was crucial in developing many of the protocols and systems that came to define the internet. The next big innovation was packet switching and it came in the late 60s. Until now, transmission of messages between computers was done by a method called message switching. It involved routing the whole message. While it was better than its precursors, it was prone to a single point of failure and inordinate delays. This made it unsuitable for large networks having real-time use cases. Packet switching changed all this by transmitting messages in small chunks called packets. This allowed routing decisions to be made per packet instead of the message as a whole. This resulted in a network that was utilized more efficiently while allowing bigger networks to exist. DARPA had already invested in the idea early. There was a landmark study that was published in November 1966. It described how researchers had successfully transmitted information between a computer at MIT and one in Santa Monica about 5000 kilometers away. It was done using the world's first wide area network. Following that, just 2 years later, ARPANET was created. ARPANET was the world's first wide area packet switch network. Its aim was to connect computers at several universities. The first two nodes at UCLA and Stanford University communicated across the packet switch network for the first time in 1969. The system famously crashed while transmitting the G of login. By 1983, ARPANET boasted of over 4000 hosts. Meanwhile, similar networks were being created all over the world. Now that they could connect computers on a single network, what was next on the agenda? The problem of remotely connecting two or more computers on a single network had been solved. But the individual networks still remained isolated from each other. Just under the umbrella of ARPA, There were three computer networks already built by the mid 1970s. Researchers now had to figure out how to interconnect these networks. Robert Kahn and Vint Cerf had worked together in ARPANET. They worked on a project attempting a national scale packet switching experiment. This was done just to test out the scalability of this packet switched medium. The problem was that computers were used across mobile devices, ships at sea, and aircrafts in the sky. So each had its own network all of them packet switched but with different characteristics some were larger some were faster and some had packets that did not get lost so the question they were faced with was how can you make all these computers talk to each other and think that they are part of the same network despite all the variations and diversity a protocol was needed to format the data this would allow two or more devices to communicate with an understanding of each other Kahn and Cerf published a paper in which they first described something called the transmission control protocol or the TCP The duo continued their work on network interconnection and in 1978 they unveiled the internet protocol This was their proposal for uniting the disparate networks TCP/IP specifies how data should be packetized transmitted and received 
IP information is attached to each packet and this information helps the routers send the packet to the right place. Each device or domain that connects to the internet is assigned an IP address. And as packets are directed to the IP address attached to them, data arrives where it is needed. For example, when an email is sent over TCP, a connection is established by a three-way handshake. First, the source sends an initial request to the target server in order to start the dialogue. Then, the target server sends a reply to agree to the process. Lastly, the source sends a packet to confirm the process. The email message is then itself broken down into packets before each is sent into the internet. The packets are finally rearranged as they arrive at the target device. The idea was that if the protocol in which the software was to be built was specified, anyone who wanted could build a piece of the internet. The open standards and protocols are probably the reason for the rapid proliferation of the internet. But there's another piece of technology that goes hand in hand with the internet. Emails. Emails are something that we all love to hate, but they've made communication so much faster and easier. So how did we get started with electronic mails? To understand how email was invented, we must first look at what existed before it. Single computer electronic mail had existed since the early 1960s. Send message was an early electronic mail program, an example of the same. Send message allowed users to compose address and send a message to another user's mailbox. Bear in mind that this program can only do so on the same computer. The mailbox was essentially just a file on the computer. It had the special property that other users could append messages to it. That is, they could write the message to the end of the file, but they could not read or overwrite what was already there. So email was just a couple of steps down the line from send message. Who's recognized as the sender of the first email? The Guinness record for the first email is held by Ray Tomlinson for an email he sent in 1971. It was Tomlinson who decided to use the now ubiquitous at symbol to separate the recipient's name from their location. As much as the format of emailing has changed over the last 44 years, this design decision has stood the test of time. Although Tomlinson did not invent the term email itself, he called it send message. The term electronic email and its abbreviation email only evolved several years later. The email was a monumental invention in how it served to break down communication barriers. But this was still a privilege that was accorded to a few academics and industrialists who could access it. Today, however, the internet has gone mainstream. A lot of the credit goes to one man. Sir Tim Berners-Lee graduated from Oxford University and worked as a software engineer at CERN in 1989. He noticed that there was a difficulty in sharing information at CERN. There was different information on different computers and he had to log on to each of them to get it. He realized that they could solve this problem by using an emerging technology called hypertext. Hypertext is a text displayed which references or hyperlinks to other text. The reader can immediately access it by clicking. Various different projects based on hypertext were imagined as early as the 1940s. Tim proposed an implementation of hypertext scheme to incorporate several different servers at CERN. 
Interestingly, his initial proposal was not immediately accepted, and his boss even noted the words "vague but exciting" on the cover. By October of 1990, Tim had written three technologies that still form the foundation of modern web. The first was HTML or the hypertext markup language. It is the formatting language of the internet. Then he also invented the URI or the Uniform Resource Identifier, an early version of the modern URL. And finally, the hypertext transfer protocol or HTTP. This allows for retrieval of linked resources from across the web. By the end of 1990, the first web page was served on the open internet, and by 1991, people outside of CERN were invited to join this web community. Quoting Tim himself here, had the technology been proprietary, it would probably not have taken off. You cannot propose that something be universal and at the same time keep control of it. So, Tim and others advocated to ensure that CERN would agree to make the underlying code available on a royalty-free basis forever. This decision, announced in April 1993, sparked a global wave of creativity, collaboration, and innovation never seen before. I cannot fathom the frenzy that would have caused back in the day. An exciting new sector in technology is being opened up overnight. The possibilities and the opportunities that it offers are endless. But every technology has its own hype and boom cycle, and the internet was going to get a rude awakening in the early 2000s. Amara's law states that we tend to overestimate the impact that a new technology is going to have on our lives in the short run, but we tend to underestimate it in the long run. Meet Arnab, a writer on the podcast. The dot-com bubble came on the heels of seemingly boundless growth. Silicon Valley startups, which were flush with investor money, promised to solve all of humanity's problems, only to be followed by a market crash destroying five trillion dollars in market capitalization. Around the same time, the Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman once wrote that by 2005 or so, it will be clear that the internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than the fax machines. That is quite a crude assessment of the situation, but hindsight is 2020. Can we loop back around to what was going on in 1999 and 2000? The story of Priceline.com is a perfect example of the dot-com era. It had a clever solution to a real-world problem. Every day, 500,000 airline seats were going unsold. Priceline offered these seats to online customers who could name the price they were willing to pay. Consumers got cheaper flights, and airlines sold their excess inventory. All inefficiencies were ironed out of the market, and Priceline took a cut for facilitating the process. Nothing wrong in theory, but nothing right in practice. Launched in April 1998, Priceline was the classic overnight success. It sold more than 100,000 tickets in the first seven months of its business. By the end of 1999, it was selling more than 1,000 tickets. Each day, in the first six months, the company spent more than twenty million dollars on advertising. In March nineteen ninety nine, Priceline went public at a share price of sixteen dollars. On its first day of trading, the stock price went up to eighty eight dollars before settling at sixty nine dollars. This gave Priceline a market capitalization of nine point eight billion dollars, the largest first day valuation of an internet company to that date. 
To sustain the business, Priceline had to buy tickets on the open market at its own cost to fulfill customers' lowball bids. In the whole exchange, it lost on an average $30 on each transaction. Right on target, if you ask the investors. An investment banker once said that the last thing I want to be is profitable because then I wouldn't get the valuation of an internet company. It feels like everyone with any idea of creating a website was trying to get in on the action. And given the financial implications of making it big, it's understandable why there was such a frenzy about it. But by the 2000s, the World Wide Web had become quite large. And when you have a lot of something, it's easy to lose some of it. So this spurred a race to create the ultimate search engine that could properly traverse the web. So what are these search engines and how do they work? A search engine searches the web for sites based on your keyword search items. It returns search engine result pages, known as SERP, with the list of sites it deems relevant to your searched keywords. The goal for many sites is to appear in the first SERP for the most popular keywords related to their business. The higher a site ranks in the SERP, the more people will see it. Web search engines catalog the World Wide Web by using a spider or a crawler. These crawling robots were first created for indexing content. They scan and assess the content on the site's pages and information archives across the web. Aliweb is widely considered to be the first web search engine. Launched in November 1994, Aliweb allowed webmasters to submit their web pages and enter the relevant keywords and descriptions for their pages. Webcrawler, developed at the University of Washington in 1994, was the first search engine to be widely used. It was also the first to fully index the content on web pages, making every word and phrase searchable. Numerous search engines became mainstream after 1995, but the biggest of them all was Yahoo. It was founded by Jerry Yang and David Philo in 1994. The most astonishing fact of Yahoo's success is that they didn't build any significant new technology. They bought and borrowed third-party tech until the acquisition of Inktomi in 2002. The success of Yahoo was all based on their packaging with a fun brand and a user-friendly interface. There seemed to be so many different players in the market when the technology was still in its nascent stages. But the market is so drastically different now, with only a few major players in it. Given the initial diversity, how did we end up at the situation we are today, where Google and Baidu are practically synonymous with search engines? This has a lot to do with one algorithm. In 1996, Robin Lee Yangong created and patented a system called RankTex for ranking the importance of web pages in a search result. For the first time, it used link analysis to determine the importance of web pages by the number of other pages linking to them. Rankdex is the basis of every major search engine's ranking algorithm today, predating Google's PageRank by two years and being referenced in Larry Page's first patent. Without Rankdex, search engines may still be using keywords, not links, as their primary ranking factor today. In 2004, Robin Lee and Eric Zhu co-founded and incorporated Baidu, China's largest search engine. Originally named Backrub, for its link-based ranking algorithm, Google was founded by Larry Page and Sergey Brin at the Stanford University. Google came relatively late to the search engine party, building upon several existing ideas in 1996 
and launching at the end of 1997. Other search engines were starting to suffer from increasing amounts of spam issues from webmasters that kept tabs on their websites. Websites would list all the conceivable keywords in their mega tags and content, often hidden at the bottom of a page or in the same color font as the background, making them invisible. They tried to trick engines into appearing more frequently on their result pages. Larry Page addressed this issue with his PageRank formula. This has been Google's magic formula for weeding out spammy keyword web pages and ranking more trustworthy websites first. This was their golden bullet and has been the secret to their meteoric rise since then. Google is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to companies that have grown and risen because of the internet. It is astonishing to see how dependent we are on using the internet for our everyday chores. From ordering groceries to booking an appointment with our doctors, we depend on having access to the internet all the time. So much of the service sector is right on our mobile phones. But how has this impacted the industries themselves? We are in the middle of a broad and dramatic technological shift. It has huge economic implications. Software companies are poised to take over large swaths of the economy. More and more major businesses are being run on software and delivered online as services. Six decades into the computer revolution, four decades since the invention of the microprocessor, and two decades into the rise of the modern internet. All of the technology that's required to transform industries through software finally works. It can be delivered widely at a global scale. At least 5 billion people in the world own smartphones, giving every individual instant access to the full power of internet every moment of every day is truly transformative. Having easier access to the service sector might be the biggest positive of the internet. And given all the changes that the internet has affected in all these different industries, it is worth looking at how the internet provider itself is undergoing a seismic shift in the coming decades. So what is all the hoopla about satellite internet and how does the internet service provider look like in the future? Satellite internet works in a similar fashion to a satellite TV. It relies on the combination of signal routed through a satellite in orbit and a receiver dish that receives that signal. You'll connect a modem to the receiver dish to translate the signal into a workable internet connection. It is already a popular option among rural internet users who live too far from a traditional internet service provider. The Swarm internet services today have thousands of satellites in orbit already. They aim to offer full service to a majority of the globe soon. While all of our lives may be taken over by the internet already, we must realize that high-speed internet connectivity is still limited to urban centers. Internet delivered via ground-laid fiber optic cables offers upload and download speeds that are much faster than satellite internet. But as companies like Google will tell you, there's nothing fast about deploying the infrastructure necessary to get fiber into people's homes. With a lot less red tape to cut through, there is every reason to believe that services like Starlink will reach the bulk of the underserved communities long before fiber ever will. The internet has been a tool for tremendous growth in many different sectors. But what is even more astounding is how it has grown from being a fad that very few knew about to being an essential resource to sustain life. Satellite internet might just be the vehicle that makes it a universal right, accessible from all corners of the world. 
a little over 40% of the world's population does not have access to the internet. Technology has created new opportunities to affect social change and improve lives, and it needs the medium of the internet to reach those in need. In a lot of developing countries, the amount of money that the general population has available to spend on something like internet is very limited. The coming digital revolution hopes to connect the unconnected world to the amazing ecosystem that has been built on the internet. Key sources for this episode include the World Wide Web Foundation and their online publications and resources, the history of search engines, a blog by Carl Hendy. For an exhaustive list of sources, please visit www.anchor.fm slash Pursuit of Prosperity. Pursuit of Prosperity is a fortnightly podcast written and produced by Shubham Vyas, Arnab Das, Vishnu Chandar, and me, Nikhil Langa. Special thanks to Mahek. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform.